Hello everybody, Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcasts on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. The National Women's Trade Union League, founded in 1903 by middle-class reformers and working-class women, it became the first national body dedicated to organizing women workers. Since the Civil War, when the Working Women's Protective Union was established by New York Sun editor Moses Beach and financed by philanthropist to aid New York seamstresses, there had been rich and professional people who sought to help women workers. Although they were all too often visionary, impractical, condescending, and paternalistic, these reform advocates did represent a break from most pre-war middle-class reformers. During the 1890s, there was an increase in the number of middle-class women frequently college-educated who demonstrated a real concern for working women and who directed their energies to assisting them. Regardless of their motivations or the length of their activities, most of the middle-class reformers agreed on two main points. First, that individual women could not be blamed for their poverty or immorality, the fault lay with society, and secondly, that these evils could be eradicated by harmonious accommodation between working women and their employers, without conflict or any fundamental change in society, such as the overthrow of capitalism and the establishment of socialism. Writing to Frederick Ingalls from Hall House on May 27, 1893, Florence Kelly emphasized the importance of the work being done by the settlement houses among the wage earners. Keeley went on to organize branches of the Consumers League in Chicago along with her other important work. In 1898, she represented the Chicago office at the National Convention of the Consumers League, and in 1899, she was chosen its first executive officer. By 1903, she had helped to set up 53 units and three college societies in 18 states. By that time, 47 factories in 11 states were utilizing the Consumer League's label, attesting to the fact that these employers' labor standards met league stipulations. The relationship between the League and the trade unions was anything but friendly. The union feared that the League's award of its label to non-union firms made organization even more difficult. The average male trade unionist regarded the middle-class social worker as more concerned with gathering statistics than with improving the worker's lot. It was not to be easy 
to convince such men that the social reformers were sincerely interested in improving the economic status of working women through trade unionism, especially since the hostility to the middle-class women often served as an excuse for the male unionists to do nothing themselves to organize women. In 1901, after lengthy hearings, the Industrial Commission issued a report linking prostitution to low wages and demanding equal pay for equal work. The Commission pointed out that evidence presented before it indicated that unions had helped to improve the welfare of working women and it placed the burden of implementing its recommendations on the existing trade unions. But the American Federation of Labor, the major body uniting these unions, had already amply demonstrated that it was not prepared to fulfill this function, except for adopting routine convention resolutions sympathetic to women. The AFL practically ignored the needs of five million female workers. In 1902, the militancy of the women in the garment shops found its way into the streets of the working-class neighborhoods. In mid-May, Jewish women, most of them housewives on New York's east side, but also including a sprinkling of women in the garment trades, formed the Ladies' Anti-Beef Trust Association to protect the rapidly rising price of kosher meat and the betrayal of a boycott of wholesale distributors by the Jewish retail butchers. The outraged women boycotted the retail butchers, barred those butcher shops that remained open, threw meat into the streets, poured kerosene on it, and prevented non-boycotters from buying meat now that is militancy at its best. Dozens of women were beaten by the police, arrested, fined, or jailed. Rebecca A. Blow one of the women boycotters engaged in the following exchange with the magistrate. Why do you riot? Your Honor, we know our wounds. We see how thin our children are and that our husbands haven't strength to work. But you aren't allowed to riot in the streets. We don't riot. But if all we did was to weep at home, nobody would notice it. So we have to do something to help ourselves. The impetus of the formation of the British Women's Trade Unions League came from two temporarily successful American women's trade unions, the New York Parasol and Umbrella Makers Union and the Women's Typographical Union. Emma Patterson, an English woman who had been impressed while traveling in the United States in 1873 by these two unions of women in New York, she returned to England fired with the idea of urging her countrywomen to form trade unions and together with other interested women formed the British Women's Protective and Protective League. In accordance to the 1881 consensus, almost one-third of the total labor force in England between the ages of 20 and 65 were women. They formed the majority of the textile trades and including girls under 20 years of age, there were more than 1,780,000 females employed in various industries, with another 2 million in domestic and other services. Their earnings were roughly 50% of the male rate. On July 5, 1888, despite their fear of dismissal and the lack of funds, 62 East End women matchmakers struck. Within two weeks, with the assistance of the Women's Trade Union Protective League, which collected 
400 pounds for the strike bond and sent down a corps of organizers to help form a union and hold it together. And aided further by the arbitration of the London Trade Council, these female strikers won major concessions, fines and deductions were abolished, wages were raised, and most important of all, these unskilled female workers formed the Matchmakers Union. It remained the largest union composed entirely of women and girls in England for many years, with a membership of 800, of whom 680 regularly kept up their weekly contributions. In 1889, the gas workers of London went on strike. During this strike, Eleanor Marx Aveling, daughter of Karl Marx, formed the first women's branch of the National Union of Gas Workers and General Laborers. The Executive Council of Gas Workers formally admitted the Silvertown Women's Branch and its secretary, Mrs. Marx Aveling, into the union. In May 1890, when the first annual conference of the National Union of Gas Workers and General Laborers took place, the union already had some 40,000 members in 89 branches, including two composed entirely of women. Eleanor Marks Aveling was elected a member of the executive board by acclamation. On a motion of the floor, moved both a male delegate and women representative, a resolution was adopted that the union should include in its demands wherever possible that women should receive the same wages for doing the same work as men. Thirty years after Emma Patterson had founded the British League, Williams Walling visited England to study its operations. Early in 1903, he met members of the British Women's Trade Union League and other trade union leaders and learned how the organizations encouraged women to join existing men's unions. Walling went to Boston in November 1903 to attend the annual AFL convention. He explained his plan to form an American Women's Trade Union League to the recently widowed Mary Keeney O'Sullivan, and she agreed to help him. They arranged for a meeting in Vanuel Hall and invited AFL Executive Council members and convention delegates whose trades include large numbers of women. This meeting was held on November 14th. Those attending selected Walling, O'Sullivan, and Nellie Barker of the Women's Labor League to draft a constitution. Walling and O'Sullivan met with Gompers, who had them submit a proposal to him which he gave his hearty approval and participated in the necessary conferences. Mary Morton Kihu, a wealthy Bostonian long known in social reform circles and the former president of the General Federation of Women's Clubs was selected as the league's first president and Mary Kinney O'Sullivan as secretary. Jane Adams agreed to serve as the vice president. Mary McDowell, a University of Chicago settlement resident, was asked to fill a position on the executive board in recognition of her work in organizing women in the meatpacking industry. Also elected to the executive board were Lillian Wald, who during the 1890s had worked to organize small women's unions of New York City garment finishers and buttonhole makers. Lenora O'Reilly, New York settlement worker and United Garment Workers organizer. Mary Frietis, a textile worker from Lowell, Massachusetts. And Ellen Lindstrom, a longtime Chicago unionist and former walking delegate for the special Order clothing workers. 
The Constitution stated that its object shall be to assist in the organization of women workers into trade unions, later was added, and thereby to help secure conditions necessary for healthful and efficient work and to obtain a just return for such work. The Constitution stipulated that the members on the executive board was to be divided as follows. The majority shall be women who are or have been trade unionists in good standing. The minority of those well known to be earnest sympathizers and workers for the cause of trade unionism. Walling was concerned about relations with the AFL. The founders considered asking for a formal endorsement from the AFL, but decided to delay until they had accomplished some definite work. The lack of women delegates at the convention was another concern. Out of the attendees, only five women and 496 AFL members present, and a last concern was the Gompers American Federalist, the AFL News letter of December 1903, made no mention of the new organization, even though it was full of convention news. When the Women's Trade Union League held its first annual meeting in October 1904, members even more optimistic than they had been in March, they agreed to work for the eight-hour day, the 58-hour work week, legislation preventing the hiring of workers with false promises and more. In 1905, the center of power in the league shifted from New York to Chicago when Alan Henrot, a wealthy Chicago woman, was chosen national president, a post she held until 1907. That year, Margaret Robbins replaced her as president and served in that position from 1907 to 1922. On November 24, 1909, 18,000 wastemakers in Manhattan and Brooklyn walked out of 500 shops. By the end of the day, more than 20,000 workers were on strike. The women working in New York City's dress and waste-making shops astonished the nation by staging this dramatic strike. This great uprising served as a catalyst for workers in other branches of the industry. It spearheaded the drive that turned the shells of unions into mass organizations, thereby laying the foundation for stable and lasting organizations in the women's and men's clothing industry and for the widespread unionization of women workers. Shirtwaists was fairly new branch of the garment trade. It had developed after 1900, especially in New York and Philadelphia, and by 1909, there was about 600 waste and dress shops in New York City, employing from 35,000 to 40,000 workers. By the end of 1909, the industry was prosperous. Wage rates had fallen steadily since the Depression of 1908. Early in 1908, a woman machine operator on waste could earn as much as $12 or $13 a week at peace rates. Late in 1909, she was lucky to make 9 or $10. The inside subcontractors exploited the very young women through an oppressive system of apprenticeship. Workers were subjugated to strict discipline. Subcontractors and examiners levied fines for lateness and for sewing errors. Local 25 of the ILGWA had jurisdiction over the weight makers. Founded in 1906 by seven young women and six men, the local had failed to attract many members. Just four weeks before the strike, 
Union officers noted that the membership had barely reached 800 workers. In late July 1909, 200 employees of the Rosen and 13 other Lay's waste shops walked out on strike in protest against inadequate pay scales. The strikers' perseverance brought results. On August 26th, Rosen brothers capitulated. The victorious strikers gained full union recognition and a 20% wage increase. The Women's Trade Union League of New York City, which had been helping the strikers from the outset of the walkouts, now established a corps of 48 volunteers, generally women from the upper middle classes who accompanied pickets in order to prevent their unwarranted arrest. Mary Dreyer, the league president, was arrested by accident and quickly released when her identity was discovered in court. During the weeks of the shop strikes, about 2,000 workers joined the union and hundreds crowded the cramped union offices daily with talk of a general strike. The two organizations met on November 22nd to discuss the question of an industry-wide walkout as well as to protest the actions of the struck companies and the police. Among the speakers scheduled to address the rank-and-file workers were Samuel Gompers, Mary Dreyer, Meyer London, and Ernest Bohm, secretary of the New York City Central Federated Union. On the night of the meeting at Cooper Union Auditorium, it was packed. Finally, after hearing one moderate voice after another, a young working woman leaped to her feet and asked for the floor. The workers in the audience recognized her as one of the most militant rank-and-filers, Clara Limlet from Lesserson's, where the workers had already been on strike for two weeks. They knew, too, that she had just returned from the hospital after having been brutally beaten on the picket line. Barely five feet tall and not more than 20 years old, she spoke in impassioned Yiddish, the native tongue of the majority of the shirtwaist workers and proceeded to berate cautious speakers who, who had held the platform during the evening. She concluded, I have listened to all the speakers and have no further patience for talk. I am one who feels and suffers from the things pictured. I move we go on a general strike. Instantly, the crowd was on its feet, adult women, men, and teenagers cheering, stamping, crying approval. Chairman Feigenbaum called for a vote. 3,000 voices shouted their unanimous approval, waving hats, handkerchiefs, and other objects. Do you mean faith? cried the chairman. Will you take the old Hebrew oath? 3,000 right arms shot up, and 3,000 voices repeated the oath. If I turn traitor to the cause I now pledge, may this hand wither from the arm I now raise. Meanwhile, messengers carried the news of the meeting to other halls where the wastemakers had gathered. There the strike vote was ratified just as enthusiastically, and thus began the famous labor struggle that has become known as the Uprising of 20,000, women's most significant struggle for unionism in the nation's history. Women by the thousands stormed the small union office on Clinton Street to sign on to Local 25. Soon nearly 30,000 operators, cutters, pressers, and finishers were on strike. Although four-fifths of the female strikers were Jewish, 
several thousand Italian and non-immigrant women strike as well. Many small waste manufacturers, unable to stand even a short interruption during the busy season, were soon parading to the union office to sign agreements with the union. These agreements include a provision for a union shop, 52-hour work week, limitations on overtime, equal division of work among union members, and a price list of changing styles to be fixed by conference between employer, employee, and union representatives. In addition, the employers promised to employ only contractors who used union labor to furnish machines, needles, thread, and other supplies, and to allow a weekly check of their payroll by union officials. Any party violating the agreement would have to pay a $300 penalty. By the time the strike was hardly four days old, almost half the original 20,000 strikers had won improved conditions, including union contracts, and had returned to work. A magistrate summed up the prevailing attitude of the courts in these words, You have no right picket. Every time you go down there, you will get what is coming to you, and I shall not interfere. Regardless of the evidence or lack of it, the girls were usually convicted. The cruel treatment of the female strikers failed to dampen their spirits. Members circulated detailed reports of police attacks on peaceful pickets, kept a careful tally of arrests, and described the callousness of police magistrates as the League volunteered legal services in police courts, provided witnesses for arrested strikers, cross-examined those who testified, raised $29,000 in bail, and acted as a complainant at police headquarters. League members also organized working women's marches and rallies. On December 3rd, a group of 10,000 striking waste makers carrying banners that read, Peaceful Picking is the Right of Every Woman, marched four abreast to City Hall to protest to Mayor McClellan against the abuse they received at the hands of his Cossack. Three League women, Ida Rope, Mary Dreyer, and Helen Merritt, along with a representative group of strikers, handed a petition to the mayor and described to him their own experiences and those of other working women at the hands of New York's finest. The mayor assured the committee that he would take up the matter with the police commissioner. Anne Morgan, J.P. Morgan's niece, was one of the women who was deeply moved by the description of the working and living conditions of the waste makers. Although she had never before shown any interest in labor disputes or in the trade union movement, she appeared on the waste makers' picket line soon after the strike began. She explained her interest in the strike to the New York Times. We can see from the general trade conditions how difficult it must be for these girls to get along. Of course, the consumer must be protected, but when you hear of a woman who pressed 40 dozen skirt for a week, something must be wrong, and 52 hours a week seems little to ask. These conditions are terrible, and the girls must be helped to organize and to keep up their organizations, and if public opinion is on their side, they will be able to do it. The New York League immediately made Ann Morgan a temporary member of its executive board. 
Another new upper-class board member was Alva Belmont, widow of Oliver T. Belmont. A few days after the strike began, she appeared on a wastemaker's picket line and announced her support for the strikers. It was my interest in women everywhere and of every class that drew my attention and sympathies. First to the striking shirtwaist girl, she explained to the press. As president of the Political Equality League, one of the city's newer and more active suffrage organizations, Belmont repeatedly linked the suffrage cause and the strike. On December 20th, the strike spread to Philadelphia. Leaders of Local 25 had known for some time that New York manufacturers were sending materials to Philadelphia for completion. ILGWU officials visited Philadelphia in November and early December and determined to halt the manufacture of goods destined for New York. However, Philadelphia strike grew basically out of the same deplorable conditions that existed in New York. The conditions of the 15,000 wastemakers in Philadelphia were summed up in an interview with an 18-year-old wastemaker. She had entered the shops seven years earlier at the age of 11 when there was plenty of work. She could sometimes earn as much as $9 a week, but in the summer she could not average more than $3, and some weeks she made so low that she could barely pay her car fare. Then there came the petty exaction of two cents a week to pay for an outing sponsored by the proprietor every summer. 25 cents for a key to the closet, needles sold at four times what they cost, and the tyranny of some of the foremen who kept the girls at their machines all day long in the summertime, even when there was no work and they earned nothing. Excuses of illness made no difference. She would keep you in if you were most dead. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcasts, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening. (music) 